The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Today, expert knowledge is so highly valued that we learn to lead first as the expert whose mastery of the details helps teams solve problems. Eventually, as your leadership role expands, expert leaders find themselves in a role where others know more. Details are no longer so accessible, and decisions are made without a full understanding. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone with Dr. Wanda Wallace. It's time to find out how to make the transformation smooth and flawless. Now, here is Dr. Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I'm Wanda Wallace. Today, we're going to talk about some of the difficult personalities. I have to admit, in the last week when I have been working with people coaching, I must have spent 80% of my time talking to people about how they deal with one personality or another in the workforce. Let's face it, regardless whether you work, inevitably you're going to end up working with, for, or alongside someone who is just not that easy for you to get along with. And maybe it's a difference in style, maybe it's a difference in value, maybe it's a difference in personality, maybe it's justified, maybe it's not justified. Either way, you end up having to find a way to cope. And that's the focus of today's show. With me today is Adrian Furnham. Adrian, Adrian is a practical academic, teaches both in psychology and in business, does a lot of consulting with business. He's the author of over 700 scientific publications, 57 books. He works with businesses on top teams, management behavior, psychometrics, leadership derailment, in effect, the stuff that goes wrong in companies. And more importantly, he's the author of a most recent book called Backstabbers and Bullies. Adrian, welcome to the show. Thank you very much indeed. It's a pleasure to have you here. So, Adrian, let me start with the straight-up first question. How do you deal with people who are just plain difficult? with fair acknowledgement that what's difficult for me may well not be all that difficult for someone else. How do you deal with them? I think the first issue is to try and understand what the difficulty is. Uh, There are a number of sort of popular books. My favorite one is called Jerks at Work. There's others, How to Deal with Difficult People. And often they give you sort of typologies. So they give you you know, the the bulldozer or the sniper or whatever. And they're quite interesting, but they're not very well based on psychological profiling or psychological facts. So I think what the way to begin in this one is saying, first of all, there are going to be difficult people, uh, difficult people for a variety of reasons. For some people, the difficulties will come and go. They might have, you know, problems at home. They might themselves be under pressure, and they might simply be not being themselves for a period of time. That, of course, does happen. And there are other difficulties where it is not them that's difficult, it's you that's difficult and haven't recognized this. That is that you don't see that your coldness or uh, um, cynicism or sarcasm uh, has these consequences. But with those two caveats, i.e. that people can have difficult times and you might be the cause of the difficulty, I think the next thing is to try and understand what is the cause of these people's difficulty. And the place to begin, in my view, is there's a number of um, books out now on um, the dark side of behavior at work. And they follow a nomenclature, they follow a system, actually loosely based on the personality disorders, which helps you understand that these people might be, for instance, passive-aggressive, or they might be obsessive-compulsive, or they might have some other similar problem. So problem number one is try and diagnose them, try and come to some idea of what is the particular nature of the problem, and then deal with them individually based on that. There are... I can think of two or three books, one very good book called Why CEOs Fail, and there's another one called The Personality Self-Portrait. Their aim is to do this, and the difference between these books and many others is that they are psychologically informed. They're psychologically informed by theory and data. 
So, number one, let's try and understand the nature of this person's problems, which causes you the difficulty. Okay, so let's go back to this notion of it may well not be them, it may be me. So this week, one of the cases that I was dealing with, someone describes that, in this case, she went away for a family holiday, having had nine months of torturous interactions with peers and a manager. She comes back from holiday with a bit of a renewed attitude of, oh, the heck with it. And all of a sudden, inside three weeks, the interactions are much smoother. Now, in this case, I would argue part of what she's done is stop adding to the problem, adding fuel to the fire. So how do you tell, Adrian, if it's me that's the problem or someone else? I think the answer is something called 360 feedback or what you Americans call multi-source feedback. In other words, ask people, ask others about uh, this individual. They, they have the data. They know. And if everybody says the same thing, that she's cold or dismissive or arrogant or self-obsessed, then I think you've got a good idea that, by and large, that is the case. So it's asking people uh, about this individual. Now, as I said before, you know, people do go, on, uh, go through periods of stress and strain and difficulty, and in these circumstances, they're, quote, not really themselves. But you simply have to ask people about the communication style or the values of somebody. Ask a few people, and if they all say the same thing, you can be guaranteed that they're probably right and that they have diagnosed the problem. That is that this individual goes around causing the difficulties, but assumes that it's others who have the difficulty rather than themselves. Okay. All right. So if I ask a bunch of people, everybody's sort of saying the same kind of thing, yeah, it's a passive-aggressive person or they're rather mm-hmm. difficult to get along with, and I know I just want to be careful I don't play into that dynamic. All right. So now let's just suppose for the moment that I've asked a few friends, a few peers at work, and they go, oh, yeah, we're all, that person's cold, indifferent, arrogant, self-centered, whatever the case is. And I see that it is really a personality characteristic of the individual and not circumstantial. Mm. Now what do I do? How do I begin to cope with this personality? Right. Um, Well, I would recommend um, some books on this. But I know this is an academic sort of thing to say. It depends. So, for instance, if they are OCD, if they're obsessive-compulsive, or if they are passive-aggressive, obviously... There are systematic differences between these individuals and things that upset them and cause them um, um, uh, pain and indeed cause you pain because of the way they behave. And in that sense, you have to adapt your strategy to the particular type of individual. I think the first, for all people, though, there are a number of things you do. You um, acknowledge, you try and get them to talk about the issues that are important to them, uh, that um, uh, that you might say people have noticed that you uh, behave in a particular way. Um, what what brings what? Why do you think you do this? It's it's to get them in some senses to do some sort of diagnosis. So the question is: Are they self-aware? Do they realise they are not quote normal and they have these consequences on other people's uh, um, um, lifestyle, their, their happiness, etc.? And then ask them if they could think of of changing these particular behaviours to help the communication process. Those are sort of general things one does, as opposed to the very specific things of dealing with somebody who has got borderline personality disorder, which is a very common one in this area. Another one would be narcissism, that they would be highly narcissistic. They might be slightly mischievous or on the psychopathic dimension. And so, as I said, once you've got the diagnosis, you then make slight adjustments to how you try to deal with them. Okay. So I try to get that person to talk a bit and acknowledge and see if they think they can make some adjustments. I'm presuming I'm also looking for the sensitive, the trigger points, if you will, that are going to send them off in the wrong direction so that I can try to avoid those. Yeah, I I think 
you know, there are, for instance, if you've got somebody who's uh, subclinically narcissistic, arrogant, vain, self-obsessed, of which a lot of people in business are, paradoxically, those characteristics help them get their positions. These people are extremely difficult to deal with. They don't want any training or therapy or change. They, In fact, what they will try and do is they'll try and coach you rather than you coach them, which makes them particularly problematic. Um, but if you take this as an example, the, if you take somebody, you think the person is, is narcissistic. Well, classically, the psychologists divide uh, narcissists into two very broad categories, grandiose and vulnerable. Grandiose are people who are massively narcissistic, but they're not, this is not like a compensation um, for the vulnerable narcissism. You see vulnerable narcissism in adolescents and young people. The trouble with confronting a vulnerable narcissist is that their whole, their whole uh, ego uh, collapses. It's actually very fragile, and, the, and the, the vanity is, in a sense, trying to compensate for this fragility. So if you, if you tap too closely at this, things collapse very, very quickly. So you've got to be quite gentle. But on the other hand, if you're dealing with a grandiose narcissist, you've got to be quite tough and quite ruthless with them. So the first issue is to try and determine what are these two types of narcissists they are, and then deal with the, the issues of change or communication or insight differently. Okay. Sounds like I need some help from a psychologist if I've <laughs> to, to make sure I've got the diagnosis straight and I cannot separate the different kinds of dimensions that are here. Let's bring this down to a little simpler. Suppose, you know, some of these I find is creative talent in the organization, people who just have... They're the ones with the breakthrough ideas. Often I find they can be the most difficult people to deal with in the organization, and they're unaware of the trauma they create around them. Do you see the same, and how do we deal with creative people? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, when when people say to me, we want more creative people in this organization, I say, well, you obviously haven't met very many then, have you? Because very creative people are are problematic. They They have a number of characteristics associated with their creativity, they are, um, first and foremost, really rather unreliable sort of people. They don't pitch up or pitch in. They're quite low on conscientiousness. They're also often very disagreeable. They don't get on with other people. They they, uh, are rather selfish. They can be obsessed as well. You know, people like game changers. Can you, if you take an example of somebody everybody knows, Steve Jobs, and you look into his history, this is a difficult man, an extremely difficult man, and an enormously talented man, but a very, very difficult man. And that, I think, is very characteristic of of people we might call game changers or highly creative individuals. If you show me a highly creative individual that is not problematic, I sometimes wonder about how creative he or she is. I think your observation is absolutely right. And for the organization, this um, this is a... a cost-benefit analysis. You've got a difficult person in the organization, uh, one who who is uncooperative, works to their own time schedule, is not a team player, and it's just a pain in the ass. But equally, they can bring to the organization magic dust. They might have something. They might have this insight. They might be someone enormously talented and able to uh, develop a new idea or a new process. And the question is, from an organizational point of view, it's a risk. But one mustn't assume that if a person is difficult, necessarily they're creative. I think creative people are difficult. Difficult people might be creative. (laughs) Right, so the two don't match together. Okay, so let's say, for example, I have somebody, one last piece of advice before we take a break. Suppose I have somebody who's just flat out pessimistic. The world is always half empty glass. Any advice on how to deal with that one? A friend of mine divides people into what she calls drains or radiators. Um, and that's this idea, you know, the glass half full or glass half empty people. I, I, from my personal experience, people are carriers of gloom. They are carriers of negativism and personality. Americans call it negative affectivity. I think to find a negative person who's been negative all their life and hoping you can do something to make them much more positive is very problematic. The only thing I do is these people are, are carriers of problems. They always come to see when there's a problem. And you, I say to people like this, I say, look, I'm very, help, help, I'm very happy to hear about the problems, but I don't want to hear 
about the problem is you have a solution as well. You are able, you can express any negativity about things that need changing, but I want a solution. So come with a problem, but also come with a solution, then I'll listen to the problem. If not, I won't listen. And that is hard for them, but does stop allowing them the negativity and the sniping and the everything's going wrong. Make them come up with the suggestions for the improvement and ask them to try and put them into place. That is the best I can offer on that one. Okay, fabulous. All right, well, we're going to take a break. And if I kind of try to summarize this, Adrian, the one is the recognition that some of the talent, some of the people that are difficult to deal with are just personality disorders in one form or another. Some of that talent we need for a host of reasons like creativity. And often some of the skills and talent we want comes with a dark side. So the first thing in understanding how to deal with some of the more difficult personalities is get some data, make sure it is really them and not you. Two is to try to understand the nature of the problem, and for that one you may need professional help or a good book or an HR advisor who's skilled and so on, something along those lines. And then three is you're trying to find a way to work with the particular personality problem. So you need a tactic for each one. Um whether it's going to be a confrontational one or, as you just said, with a pessimistic, I'm going to force a particular way of a conversation with them so that I'll listen to your complaint, but only when you come with a solution to it. An excellent summary. All right, fabulous. Okay, so we're going to take a break. When we come back, Uh, though, we're talking with Adrian Furnham, and we're going to be talking about how to deal with the Machiavellian characters that appear in our organizations. We'll be right back. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. I'm Wanda Wallace. With me today is Adrian Furnham. Adrian is a professor of psychology and of business. He's a fabulous speaker, a lot of fun to be around and most recently the author of a book called Backstabbers and Bullies. And Adrian has spent much of his life trying to understand some of the more challenging performance people, leadership characteristics that exist in organizations. So we have been talking about how to deal with difficult personalities, and Adrian was just giving the advice that first we need to make sure it's not me, that's the problem, instead of somebody else. And to do that, when I ask other people, I'll get a good sense accordingly. And then two, I need a better better understanding of the cause of the problem, the nature of the problem, and then the solution that I choose is much more tailored to the specifics of the personality. So with that, I want to talk about the Machiavellian behavior, the people that are overly political, they'll do almost anything to get their personal goal met. I hear people describe lots of colleagues that are aggravating as Machiavellians. Sometimes I think we overuse that word. Um, but that said, when you find somebody's Machiavellian, they're difficult to deal with. So, Adrian, what's your advice on how to deal with Machiavellian behavior? Okay. Um, let me uh, talk about what the psychological research says about Machiavellians. There are some characteristics of the Machiavellian. First of all, is they um, they have relative lack of affect in interpersonal relationships. They don't have empathy that cold. They are not, there's no warmth of human kindness, and, and that's the first thing. Secondly, they don't they're not very concerned with conventional morality. You know, moral and immoral are 
not as clearly defined as you and I would think. They, it's a very gray area for them, and they'll, they'll go very near the line. They are not, however, psychopathologically... Uh, uh, um, they're not, they don't have any particular pathology. In other words, they, they have a good reality check, and they can fit well in organizations. So they're not psychopaths, though they have some of the characteristics. And thirdly, they have a very low ideological commitment. They don't care about other people. They don't care about the company. They're tactical. They're, their aim is to benefit their own, um, their own careers, not anybody else's. So we have people who are um, psychologically, they're often very smart. They're perceptive into other people. Uh, and they use them. You know, we talk about Machiavellians being manipulative. They're cynical people, manipulative. So they work, uh, they find targets in organizations, and they use and abuse them. They don't abuse them uh, physically in any sense, but they use people for their own ends. Uh, and, you know, in many organizations, there are many of these people for the good reason that Machiavellianism works. And in some corporate cultures, it's really the only way to the top that it's dog eats dog. As a friend and colleague of mine calls uh, Robert Hogan, he says, we have a problem at work, and that we have to get along with people, but also get ahead of people. And the Machiavellian sacrifices getting along with people than getting ahead of people. So I think we probably recognize these calculating, smart individuals who, uh, you know, sail very close to the wind and try and, and get their own way. They're often very, very successful people. So what to do about them? Well, if you're going to deal with a Machiavellian, I think what you need to do is, uh, first of all, if you deal with them face-to-face, -face, I always advise people to go in pairs. What a Machiavellian doesn't like, he or she doesn't like people um, witnessing their Machiavellian behavior. Or, for instance, another thing to do is if they have a conversation with you, you put in writing into them, you send a, a note back saying, this is my understanding, we've just had this conversation, this interaction, this is my understanding of what you said and what you want from me, is this correct? Again, the Machiavellian doesn't particularly like that because it's a record of their behavior. So I think what you need to do is, is work in pairs or in groups to um, uh, con not necessarily confront the Machiavellian, but not let them get away with their stuff. Next, I think, you need to put in process where you can various procedures which stop their immorality. Uh, immorality is a strong, it's called amorality, their happiness at um, doing things which are not strictly, possibly against the law in small ways, but they're always very keen on doing this. And when you notice that they are doing these sort of things, then, uh, you know, object and put it back to saying, well, actually, it's company policy that this is not uh, possible. Uh, we're not allowed to do this. This is not according to organizational culture or whatever. So you remind them on a, on a regular basis the um, problems associated with their behavior. And I think one should do this often publicly. That's something they don't particularly like. They don't like to be seen to be doing these things. They prefer a one-to-one -one relationship with individuals, particularly those who are useful to them. And they're often, they won't always pick on vulnerable people. They'll be pick on people who are useful to them. And to be armed by these people saying, always be clear what they're saying to you. Keep things in writing remind people about company policies, these sort of things. That's how I try and, at first, uh, deal with a, a Machiavellian. So it's not necessarily that I need to avoid them. I just need to be aware of the behavior and then manage almost around it in a way that I'm protecting myself. Is that what you're saying, Adrian? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you, many organizations are full of Machiavellians because the corporate culture is one that says the only way you get on in an organization is being Machiavellian. You know, people say, oh, it's a terrible thing, office politics. Office politics is a very dirty thing. Because what they're saying is that it's, it's not honesty and it's not ability that helps you get on. It's doing something else. It's knifing people in the back. It's spreading rumors. It's, it's uh, smarmy talk to the right people. That's the nature of Machiavellianism. And it's true, I think, you would find in many organizations that the only way up the organization is to be Machiavellian. So I think you're going to find many organizations which are indeed full of Machiavellians. But of course, they don't like each other because, you know, one Machiavellian will, will, will see in another 
uh, uh, an enemy because they can't manipulate them or do things in the same way. So they exist. They exist in large numbers. Uh, protect yourself. Uh, don't copy them. There are better ways to uh, get more successful in an organization. You know, I was giving a talk just yesterday on, on uh, office savvy. Uh, I think you know, the, the secrets of, of savvy people in an organization. And people say there are, you know, number one, partner with your boss because your boss is power. Be a team player. Understand the power map in your organization. Uh, connect with powerful people um, and commit to the business. Uh, do a bit of self-promotion. Now, some of these things, some of these ideas of, of being office savvy taken to extreme are indeed Machiavellian. You know, understanding the power map. When you go into an organization, the organogram is not necessary where the power lies because somebody is head of this or a director of that doesn't necessarily mean they're the most powerful person in the organization at all. The Machiavellian picks that up and then tries to get rest the power or use the power of individuals. Now, you don't have to be Machiavellian, but I think it's a good idea to understand the power map. The line between um, this cold, this cold, amoral, selfish, uh, a Machiavellian, and the successful senior manager working his way up is not that clear. It's not that clear. And at times, you know, everyone is perhaps enforced to be a bit Machiavellian, forced to say, you know, you've got to be hard with people. You can't be empathic the whole time. You've got to look after number one, as they say. And in that sense, I don't think there are these unusual, wicked people called Machiavellians and us nice, good people. I think we are often... Uh, can be Machiavellian. Sometimes in our organization, we're encouraged to be Machiavellian because it pays in the end. Okay, interesting. That would imply that all of us have a degree of it. Now, we talked in the last segment about narcissism, and you talked yeah. about two kinds of narcissism, the grandiose and the vulnerable. Mm. Is Machiavellian and narcissism the same, or are they really quite different? Well, interestingly, um, there's a lot of work now in psychology called the Dark Triad. And there's a wonderful man uh, called Delroy Paulus in Canada who's done a lot of work in this field. And he says that if you want to think of difficult people, there is a, what he calls the Dark Triad. And there are three, characters, three traits associated with each other. One is Machiavellianism. The second is narcissism, and the third is psychopathy, being a psychopath. And it's this, this intersection of these three particular types that gives you the heart of darkness. And there are measures of this, and they're quite simple. There's one, in fact, called the Dirty Dozen. It's just 12 measures. So it looks at the extent to which uh, you, are, uh, uh, you have uh, psych- psychopathy, you, you express the characteristics of a psychopath, and what... what Characters as a psychopath of all the many things is a lack of conscience. It's a lack of what the psychologists would call a superego. They are unempathic because they have no conscience. And of course, not having a conscience enables you to do things which um, other people would not do. It gives them a, a, power, a, a power in a way because they don't, they don't care about the right or wrong. They don't worry about these things. The narcissism is the second, there's the vanity that goes with, with, with a lot of dark side people, this uh, self-importance. And of course, if you meet people who appear to be self-important or very, very highly self-confident, you think to yourself, well, they must have a reason for being self-confident. Maybe they're very, very good at something. And that, of course, helps them, plus the Machiavellianism. So these are overlapping concepts, but together they make up uh, what is called the dark triad. So, and the uh, you know, psychology, they're, they're intercorrelated. They, they are slightly different. You can be narcissistic without being psychopathic, and you can become psychopathic without being narcissistic. But these traits in combination make up the dark triad. And, and what I say in, when I give talks, and indeed in my book, is that if you are good-looking, articulate, and educated, and you are... A, a narcissistic Machiavellian psychopath, my goodness, can you do well in life? And you meet these people, you know, there are, I think there are something like 40 American CEOs in prison at the moment. Um, and there's a large number of books out on, on people, on, you know, psychopathic leaders and dark side leaders. And the puzzle for many people is how on earth 
did they ever get to these positions? How is it that a company will appoint and promote a psychopathic narcissist? Well, of course, these are matters of degree. Not it's not you know it's not clinical. It's subclinical. But of course, what you can see is that the characteristics of these of of the psychopathic Machiavellian narcissist are very beneficial in organisations. They help you up the greasy pole. The confidence the, of, of the the bold confidence of the narcissist, the mischievous rattling of the cage of the psychopath, and this and the and the insight and, and low moral cunning of the of the uh, Machiavellian. These things in combination in many organizations really helps people get to the top. I'm always surprised why there's not more people uh, like this at the top. You know, there's a recent academic literature on leaders who fail and derail. And I've been fascinated by the number of uh, books that have come out recently on this topic. We all think that, you know, leaders are people who have wonderful characteristics of, of heroism and strength and moral goodness and so forth. And of course, there are leaders like that. But I think at least half do, do, are not like this. And that's why so many fail and derail. They do show these traits of narcissism and psychopathy and Machiavellianism, which has helped them up the greasy pole. The trouble is, when they get to the top, they often get found out. And it's at this point that we, we can learn the mistakes of letting these people stay in and thrive in organizations when we could do something about it much earlier. Okay, fascinating. All right, we're going to have to take a break at this point too, Adrian. Um, I really like this notion of the dark triad, and that simplifies so many of the disorders, and it brings it down to sort of three kind of qualities that come in varying degrees of strength as well as varying degrees of overlap. Mm. So the Machiavellian, the narcissist, and the psychopath that's lacking conscience. And that some of those skills have some strengths, and they're not all completely total dark sides, but that overused, used in the wrong ways, can be destructive to organizations. I'm talking with Adrian Furnham. Adrian is um, an academic who's both in business and psychology and the author of a most recent book called Backstabbers and Bullies. When we come back from break, we're going to pick up with this notion about the dark triad and get a few more tips on how to deal with these kind of personalities, as well as a bit of advice on how do you spot it early on. We'll be right back. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. I'm Wanda Wallace. With me today is Adrian Furnham. Adrian is a professor in business and in psychology, a consultant to lots of organizations, um, a huge academic background, 700 scientific papers, 57 books, and most recently, Backstabbers and Bullies. What I find most fascinating about talking to Adrian, apart from his charming personality and how much fun he is to be around, is that his depth of understanding of personality, particularly some of the difficult personalities. We were just talking about the triad, the dark triad, the Machiavellian, the narcissist, and the psychopath. So the Machiavellian is the one that's willing to do almost anything in service of the end goal, a bit amoral. The narcissist is the one who's very vain. It's about me, fairly self-important and self-confident. And the psychopath is the one that's lacking conscience. Consciousness, conscience, Whew, can't quite say that word. Um, the notion is that those are the three big and that they come in overlapping degrees and in de- degrees of strength. 
that sometimes there are actually components of that are advantageous for advancing in organizations. We also talked about the, the Machiavellian and how to deal with the Machiavellian personality. So, Adrian, I want to turn now to the narcissist. If I'm working with somebody who's narcissistic, fairly self-important, self-confident, vain, what's my best strategies for managing around them? Well, the first thing is it's going to be difficult because they have the impression that you are lucky to be working with them and for them, that they have magic dust, that they are special, that they have uh, an ability and insight that other people don't have. And therefore, it is your task to recognize this and to, uh, it's a strong word, worship it. So they're not going to pay any attention to you. Um, because you're not important, they're important, and it is your job to recognize their importance. This um, is therefore highly problematic, particularly if when you don't do this, they get angry and they puncture your, um, uh, when you puncture their pomposity. I think it's a very gradual process. I think people, um, you need again to give them as much feedback on their beliefs um, that um, that they have which are wrong. For instance, I go back to this concept of 360-degree feedback. So you'd say to them, well, rate yourself, rate your managerial ability on a 10-point scale, and they'll say 9.5. And you say, well, I tell you what, this is rather odd because in the last you know, appraisal or something, all your reports gave you 6.5. So here's a difference in opinion. And uh, what do you attribute? To that, what do you? How do you explain this sort of behaviour? And to do that sort of thing, so you, they will have immense confidence and boldness and arrogance uh, and pride and egotism in certain characteristics. What to try and do is, in a very cool and not threatening way, is provide them with evidence that they're wrong, that these are grossly over-exaggerated. It has to be done very, very gently. Uh, they need to be given what is comparative data, which they don't like. They, they resisted this because some people say the narcissism derives from very early childhood uh, problems. So that's, that's my basic um, uh, position on, on the narcissist. Um, provide them with, first of all, be, expect to be uh, ignored and 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 uh, um, dealt with dismissively because you are not as talented and as wonderful as them. But where you can, where others consistently feed them slowly data which suggests that their perception is wrong, that there's lots of data to suggest that they're not quite as... Now, you've got to do this gently because you, they, it might unleash great amounts of anger and fury and retribution. Um, and so it has to be done very gently, drip by drip, hoping that they will get some better um, uh, view of their actual abilities. Often narcissistic people have become very good. I mean, I think we have a, a prime minister in England who moved from high self-confidence to cynic, uh, to um, rather uh, subclinical narcissism. You know, success is a bad teacher. And if you have success after success, you sometimes believe this must be entirely due to me. I've, got, I've done something right. And so you find people growing in their narcissism, um, which, uh, which can be quite unattractive and also very bad for organizations. So provide them with slowly, slowly reasonable data which suggests an overinflated um, an overinflated view of themselves and hope that this will begin to get a more correct vision of, of who they are. So it's not so much a matter of correcting the narcissism as bringing the degree of it down a notch. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, often narcissistic people are very good. They are good at what they do. They've always been good at what they do. It's just they cross some line between high self-confidence and subclinical narcissism. And the subclinical narcissism leads to this pride, grandiosity, but worse, lack of empathy, because they're not interested in you. They're interested in themselves. You, you see this in, in young adolescents, this vulnerable narcissism, where they become, you know, haughty and, and, and vain, and yet you can pop it all in a moment because it's not really based on anything thorough. This is less the case with, 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 with adults. Um, what you'd have to do is simply 
you know, make them more aware that other people count not only themselves, and they're not quite as talented and as wonderful and as charming as they believe they are. Okay. All right. So what you've given me is, a, in one hand, if I'm dealing with a narcissist and I'm not in a position to be able to give them the feedback to guide them, then part of what I need to do is to reset my sights on how they're going to treat me. So not to yeah. get upset if I get dismissed or if I don't get any attention. Yeah. Or that's right. I think, you know, people, if you, if you look at, there are certain industries, I mean, if you take the fashion industry, but there are so many of them are, are, are clinical narcissists. They're not very, you'd imagine it wouldn't be much fun to go to dinner with them. They're not fun to be around because they're only obsessed with themselves. And unless you spend all your time fawning and, and, and encouraging their narcissism, they dismiss you as being a little person, irrelevant and whatever. So they're not much fun to be around. You can correct them and you can get the you know some organizations cause narcissism they turn their leaders into narcissists by trumping up the heroic characteristics of the leader um, and that I think is is bad and leads ultimately to more problems than it's worth okay all right now I want to distinguish what we're talking about here in terms of pathological narcissism from the average ego that needs a little bit of boosting inside most organizations where it doesn't do any harm to offer compliments to people and to acknowledge what that person has done that's been good. That's not what we're talking about in terms of the extreme degree of narcissism yeah. where it's really all uh, about me. Yeah, I, I think you know one of the big breakthroughs we've had with the psychologists and the psychiatrists is move from categorical to, to uh, and typological to dimensional. What does that mean? If you don't say people are introverts or extroverts, psychopaths or not psychopaths, this is a scale. It's like height. Some people are tall, some people are very, very tall, and so forth. And these are, are lines on the scale. So you go from, from self-confident to very self-confident to extremely self-confident to some clinically narcissistic to clinically narcissistic. It's that sort of line. And, you know, things can push people over the line and back uh, back and forth. And so we're not, we're talking here about people whose high self-confidence sometimes goes over the line and is manifest in this very unattractive, you know, lacking in, uh, pride, egotism, and vanity. Okay, so... Great. All right, now let's turn to the third of the triads. We've done the Machiavellian. We've done the narcissist. Let's talk about the psychopath. Describe that person to me, and how do we deal with them? They, it's sometimes called, anti, it's now called antisocial uh, personality disorder, and it is antisocial behavior. And the two words, that, that, the, 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 the two things that come to mind are callousness and impulsivity. Um, the callousness is... I have literally the office next to me, the world's expert on identifying psychopathy in children. These are eight years older, and they're the sort of who torture animals and this sort of thing. And callous is the right word, because they are completely lacking in empathy, in the warmth of human kindness. They are um, um, remorseless in their self um uh, their aim to please themselves and have complete disrespect for the law, for other people, for anything else. So they are desperately antisocial, and their antisocial behaviors can take many forms. The other characteristic is this sort of impulsivity, this doing things immediately uh, to, to uh, fulfill their immediate ple- pleasure. So you have cold, callous, remorseless, impulsive people. Now, very often, if you are, have these characters and you're not very bright and you're not very well educated, you become a minor petty criminal. Um, the worry, the characters, the, the ones we come across are very successful because they're in the workplace. And they now, they've been called for about 20, 30 years now, they've been called the um, industrial psychopath or the corporate psychopath. And these are people who are very close to, are subclinically uh, psychopathic. Um, there's a great interest in this in these in these characters, and the issue is, you know, can they be can they be changed? Now, if you talk to the psychiatrists and the and and psychopaths, they say treatment is often very very unsuccessful. Indeed, they stop treating people because they learn from the treatment how to manipulate people even more successfully. And some of the maximum security prisons are full of, full of these people who 
you know, are not necessarily killers. When you say psychopath, most people think of the shower scene in Psycho, and they imagine a psychopath as somebody with a kitchen knife about to cut your throat. You're much more likely to find them in the financial sector of, of organizations, and their and their callousness and their disregard for other people has allowed them to climb the greasy pole. The you will see sometimes in organizations will will say, you know, these people can manage tension. They can, um, um, uh, what, what, what do the Americans say? They can deal uh, 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 with, with with this issue to uh, kick ass. A friend of mine says these people can kick ass. Well, they can kick ass because they don't care about people. They they, they frankly don't care how they kick ass. They go into organizations. They're, in fact, hired into organizations to shake the place up. And, you know, any human being going to an organization, this means people are made redundant, mean they're fired. Uh, there's a lot of distress, a massive amount of distress, when organizations go through a lot of these processes. And many people find, many leaders find that, you know, they, they take a lot of personal stress themselves. The psychopath does it, and this allows them to have a, a reputation as being change makers, as people who go to an organization and shake the whole place up. Well, they can shake the whole place up because of their callousness, because of their, their uh, you know, their um, rem- uh, remorselessness and pursuit of a goal, a selfish goal, a pleasure-seeking goal. Now, not all of them will break the law um, because there aren't, or they will follow the law as much as possible. But the hurt they cause individuals is phenomenal. And the question you want to ask me is, yeah, so what are you going to do about it? Well, it's not that easy to deal with the psychopath. There's a very uh, good book. It's called Snakes in Suits, and it's subtitled When the Psychopath Goes to Work. And once again, as I said earlier with, with the Machiavellian, I think the way in which you deal with this is to log their behavior. It, and that is the, the psychopath will resist any form of, you know, they don't like committee meetings, they like dealing with individuals one-on-one, they push the boat forward in particular ways, they don't like regular business processes, they don't like minuted meetings, they don't like anything that might inhibit their style. And so what I advise people to do, if they think they're dealing with a psychopath, and as I said, there are a number of characteristics, there's early law-breaking, there's often impossibility, recklessness in their personal lives, they would have gone through many, uh, um, probably many relationships. They're not really interested in, in people, they're, in, they're like narcissists, they're interested in themselves, but they abuse people for what they want. And you will find in their, in their li- lives a, a, a tremendous, you know, some people call it courage, they they, they take part in courageous sports. They, they appear to be quite reckless with their own life and with the lives of other people. So the recklessness and the callousness in combination are, are quite disastrous. So what I would do, is, if you think you're dealing with, with a, a psychopath, is pay strong attention to organizational processes which try and uh, stop them. You know, they get attracted to sectors and to jobs where there is very, very low uh, regulation. So you're not going to find psychopaths down in your local, you know, your local uh, organization because they, these organizations are highly regulated. So they're attracted to, and that's why the bankers have this bad reputation, because they weren't very well regulated. And what the psychopaths doesn't want, they don't like any form of regulation, and they'll go to countries which are lowly regulated. I remember talking to a man who, uh, on the test I was giving him, turned out to be on this dimension. And it was interesting. You know, he is on his fourth marriage. I said to him, where did he like working? Oh, he said, I love working in East Europe. Why? I said, oh, he said, it's like the Wild West. They don't have rules and regulations there. And he said, you can get things done. And I thought, hmm, I think I know what that means. I think I know what, exactly what this means. This was a man out for himself. He was disrespectful of the law of regulations of other people. He was interested in getting, he was interested in, in pleasure for himself. And he really didn't care. Um, we think we got him in the, you know, and you saw if you looked at his curriculum vitae that he was um, moved from organization to organization very regularly, two years here, three years there, and he escaped just before he was caught. Now, this wasn't a dangerous man in the sense that he would murder or kill somebody, but he was certainly dangerous because he would lead the organization to doom if it didn't do what he wanted it to do. 
So this is the concept of the, of the industrial or the corporate psychopath, the person who is possibly got a reputation for being very, very charming, highly educated, highly articulate, but frankly doesn't care about the rules, has no interest in the rules at all, and desperate no interest in other people. They don't necessarily become narcissistic. They're not overly interested in themselves except the pleasure that they derive from maybe hurting people or maybe getting money and this imp- impulsivity of, of, of getting these, getting pleasure quickly. The pleasure might be spending money, it might be drugs or whatever. These are the characteristics and the, the more you are along the scale, the harder you are to treat. But the, but the bottom line is, and I think many people are recognizing it, these are not very rare people. You know, 1% to 2% of the population are psychopaths. If that's the case, in America, there's 1 to 2 million or maybe more of these people on the, somewhere on this dimension. And many of them will go through life really rather successfully from their own point of view. They will leave behind them a wake of destruction, of, of relationships, of the abuse of people, of the abuse of their trust, and of their of their love and of their of their help, and this wake of destruction is the way in which you find the psychopath. I always suggest when you're selecting people, what you should do is you should ring up people who have worked for them, and not necessarily the people they say. So the best way, and I think uh, I've noticed this being done more and more in organisations, the structured interview where people will phone you up and say, you've worked with X for a number of years, and you get, a, you get a number of people who've worked with him or her for a number of years, and hear what they say. My goodness, you will notice very quickly whether you're dealing with a psychopath or not. I myself Fabulous. have done a number of times. Fabulous, Adrian. Fascinating conversation here. Thank you very much for being with us today. Again, the book, if you'd like to read more, is Backstabbers and Bullies. So, Adrian, I think the thing that I find most fascinating about this is the triad because it simplifies um, what we're looking at. We're talking about narcissist, Machiavellian, and um, antisocial behavior. And I think the advice in all of them is that the more we document what we've agreed to, what we said, the more it's witnessed, the more regulations we have, the easier it becomes to be less damaged by some of these personalities. I think the other telling statement is they exist in the world. There's not a lot of way of fixing them. They're going to appear, and we just need tactics for managing through it. So thank you for being here. Wanda, thank you. All right. Well, this has been a fascinating show. Next week, we're going to be speaking to Neen James. We're going to take a completely different tack and talk about time management. How do you actually get more done in the time that you have? Neen has some fabulous advice and tips and frameworks for thinking about time. In fact, not how do you manage it, but how do you fold it? Join us next week. Thank you again for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Take charge this week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.